Our reading this evening is taken from 1 Kings chapter 3, and you'll find it on page 282, 282 of the Church Bibles. So 1 Kings chapter 3, and reading from the beginning. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall round Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while he was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept 
and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive and said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Amen. Solomon's wealth and wisdom. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the regions west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the, no, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley and also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the, on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Thank you, Cheeks. Um, that's his nickname, by the way, so... <laughs> It's not me having a go at him. Uh, I think only his mum calls him in. So uh, thanks for that, Cheeks. That was great. And um, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Kings. We're starting a new series this evening. 
looking through this book. It's a, it's a difficult book, complex book to preach. Um, let me just tell you briefly what it's about, if you're unfamiliar with it, and I think what we can really learn from uh, it today. One and two kings uh, records the events that happened in Israel around a thousand years before Jesus, and it charts the rise and fall of Israel's kings. So it begins with the, the golden age of Israel's rule under King Solomon, uh, and then we watch his fall. We watch the kingdom split in two, and then as we read on, we see eventually the northern kingdom gets destroyed by an Assyrian army, uh, and the southern kingdom gets wiped out by the Babylonians until there's nothing left. Uh, and that is what the story of One Kings is about. But it's not just a, a history book. Um, the book of One Kings is, is, is a sermon. It's a sermon that uses the events that really happened in history. Because what we read of here, we're not just looking at any nation. We are looking at God's chosen nation. And the author of One Kings doesn't just want to record what happens. He wants us to learn from what happens. And here's what I think the, the big message of this book is. I've printed it out on your sheet just to help you. This is kind of the, the theme that we see running all throughout 1 and 2 Kings. It's this. If God's covenant promises to his people are to be fulfilled, we need a king who is perfectly obedient to God's word. So I think that that, that is the key principle that the author of 1 Kings is trying to convey to the people who originally read this book, which would have been the Israelites that were scattered about um, during the Babylonian exile. That is the big message. Long ago, way before the kings were established, God made promises through a man called Abraham, really key promises to understanding the Old Testament and the Bible. And he made a promise to Abraham that from him would come this great nation and they would inherit this land that God would give them. And when they inherited that land, they would have peace on all sides and they would be used by God to be a blessing to the world. And from them, salvation would come to the entire world. And as the Bible progresses, those key promises that we see made way back in the book of Genesis, those key promises start to become tied to one lone figure, God's king. So if God's covenant promises to his people are to be fulfilled, we need a king who is perfectly obedient to God's word. So how is this relevant for us today? How is the book of 1 Kings going to help us? Let me give you three reasons uh, why this is going to be good. Cheek said that a good sermon has three points. I'll give you three reasons as to what you're going to benefit from uh, as we study this series through 1 Kings. Firstly, this book helps us understand Jesus. Uh, when Jesus came, he, he called himself and he was known by others as the Christ. Uh, and that means anointed one. It means uh, essentially God's chosen king. So Jesus' description of himself is all tied up into this idea of being a king. The reason we've got this, the reason we have these you know, thousand years of history of, of Israel's kings, is it's God's way of teaching us about the kind of king that we need. It's God's way of teaching us about Jesus, who is the one that this entire book uh, is pointing towards. Secondly, it teaches us about the nature of God's kingdom. Uh, so Jesus describes the church as his kingdom. Uh, Jesus describes eternity with him uh, as the kingdom of God. Uh, and what we see in this book is a kind of picture of what God's kingdom should look like under the right rule. Uh, and thirdly, uh, and finally, 1 Kings really shows us the importance 
of obeying God's word in an increasingly secular society. So the kings that fall in this book, and nearly all of them do, uh, it's because they disobey God's word and they cave in to the kind of peer pressure that was round about them. This book highlights the importance of a, of a wholehearted devotion to God. So it's, a, it's an extremely relevant book for the church today. And if you're new with us and this all seems uh, a bit strange, just bear with me as we look at this text uh, and hopefully I can show you why that is. So let's dive in. Let's uh, begin with the the story that we've read. Um, We didn't look at chapters 1 and 2. We've only got eight weeks, so I'm just kind of picking out the key parts uh, within this book. Uh, But in chapters 1 and 2, you've basically got the story of Solomon's ascension to the throne. It is surprisingly similar uh, to the storyline of the first Godfather movie, if you've seen that. Um, but rather than a mafia mob boss, it's God's chosen king. Um, but what happens there, um, Solomon waits till his father dies, and then he kind of has, uh, takes out essentially all the enemies to God's kingdom, and he is now crowned king of Israel and established as their great king. And in this chapter, we see why Solomon uh, is kind of the paradigm of what a great king should look like. And it's all linked to one key attribute, his wisdom, his wisdom. That is what Solomon is famous for in history, his wisdom and his wealth. So I have two points that I want us to see from these chapters, two very simple points. Uh, It's not going to be a great sermon because it's only got two points. Uh, I'm sorry about that. But uh, these are the two points that I think will help us uh, this evening as we look at this. Firstly, we see the need for a wise king. And secondly, we see what the benefits of living under a wise king's rule is. That's what I think we see, and that's what the author is trying to convey uh, in these two chapters of one king. So firstly then, the need for a wise king. What is it that makes Solomon so great? Uh, You can see it there in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 3. Solomon loves God, We see that in verse 3. He is a man who loves God like his father David. And God appears to him in a dream. And God essentially says to him, what do you want from me, Solomon? Whatever you want, I will give it to you. Now just think about that question. Because here we have a man who is now king. And it's it's as if God has essentially given him a blank check. Think about it honestly and ask yourself, what would you say if God said to you, Ask of me what you want. What would you ask for? Because how you answer that reveals what it is you desire most in life. It reveals your priorities. Now look at what, what Solomon's priorities are here. Solomon, he, he knows who God is. He knows he's the God who made this great promise to this nation of Israel through Abraham. And he knows who he is in relation to God. He knows that he is God's servant and that these people that he is about to govern are his chosen people. So what does he want? Verse 8, he says this, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people. What does Solomon want more than anything? What is his greatest desire? It's wisdom. But do you notice in the passage that it's not wisdom for himself. It's not wisdom so that he can know how to make the right choices. It's wisdom for the sake of God's people. He cares about God's people and he wants to govern them rightly. 
here we have a man then who's king of Israel, a man who loves God and who wants to follow God and obey him, and a man who loves God's people and wants to do the best he can for these people. And God is he's pleased with that request. He's pleased because what does that tell us about what Solomon's like? He's a selfless, loving king. And that pleases God. And as such, God ends up giving him riches and splendor so that there's scarcely anyone in the history of the world who, is, who was as wealthy as Solomon. That might be a good task maybe for some of you if you're up for that, to try and work out what was like the net worth of Solomon uh, based upon what we see of him here in 1 Kings. Uh, so here we have this wise, selfless, loving king. Now, what's the author trying to tell us in conveying this to us, to his, to his original readers. What is he trying to say? We could say that he's pointing out how, how noble a pursuit wisdom is. And, and I think there's something in that. The Bible puts a lot of emphasis on the importance of pursuing wisdom. There's, there's a whole genre in the Bible of wisdom literature. In fact, uh, we just looked at some of the wisdom of Solomon. We looked at the book of Proverbs. Uh, I suggest listening to some of those sermons they'll be online. I guarantee, I guarantee you will find it both challenging and helpful. But I think our author's trying to, we think bigger than that. I think the author is trying to tell us something much bigger. The author of 1 Kings didn't write this primarily to tell us what we need, but to tell us the kind of king that we need. We need a, a king like Solomon, a selfless king, a, a wise king. And it appears that that Solomon is this man. He's the one who's going to bring all these promises that God made to his people. They're finally going to come to fruition through him. This, you read through 1 Kings, and you'll see that Solomon is most definitely not the man. He falls quite tremendously, and he fails, and he lets God and the people down. In fact, you can see just little cracks forming here uh, at the start of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, this kind of marriage alliance with Pharaoh's daughter um, why does the author put that there? It's actually uh, in Deuteronomy, God's law, which Solomon said to his father David he would keep. Uh, there's a law against marrying uh, foreign women. And you can see that there's something happening with Solomon. There's cracks forming. He is not quite the king that we are looking for. Solomon in chapter 3, think of it like this. Solomon's kind of like a blueprint. Uh, he's a blueprint of what's to come. He's not the re real deal. He, he's a picture and the building that he was a blueprint of would come a thousand years later in the person of Jesus Christ. We need someone whose, whose love for God would be greater than Solomon. We need someone whose, whose love for people would be so utterly selfless it would be unmatched by anyone else. We need someone whose wisdom would know no bounds. We need a greater, and so, greater than Solomon. And interestingly, that is exactly what Jesus calls himself. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to some religious leaders about an incident later in the book of 1 Kings when the, the Queen of Sheba, or uh, the Queen of the South, as she's also known, comes to visit Solomon to hear from his great wisdom. Uh, it's a famous story. If you're a fan of Handel, uh, I think he's got a, a song about the, the Queen of Sheba coming to visit uh, Solomon. How's that for contextualization right there? Um, also, Queen of the South, the only Scottish football team to be mentioned in the Bible. Um, I looked everywhere for Hibernian, but uh, it's not there. Um, 
uh, and that's neither here nor there. Let's, let's listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew 12, 42, talking about this incident. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus is speaking of, of himself the one who's greater than Solomon. He is the king that not only Israel, but he is the king that the entire world needs. Why? Because Jesus is not just any old guy. Jesus is God himself. God himself come down to us in the flesh, the one who spoke to Solomon in that dream. He is the, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, perfect in love and humility. And because he is the only true God, the everlasting king of all kings, this is what the apostle Paul can say of Jesus in Colossians 2 verse 3. Jesus Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's an incredible statement. All knowledge, all wisdom that we see now is just a muddy reflection of what finds its source in Jesus the King. That's the King we need. That's the King that we have in the church. And now for some of you here, maybe that, that idea might, maybe that rails against you a little bit because you might think, well, what's all, all this chat of needing a King? I don't need a King. I, I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I know what's going on in my own life. And I would respond, well, I would say two things. Firstly, whether or not we, we feel that we need Jesus as king doesn't change the fact that he is king. We may not like that, that idea. I think naturally we, we, the human heart wants to put itself in the place of God. But at the end of the day, whether you believe it or not, it, it's irrelevant because it's true. Now, you can look at the Gospels and you can look at what, what Jesus says about that and you can weigh these claims out for yourself as to whether or not you think that's true. But secondly, I think we struggle with this idea of, of having a king or having a, a ruler over us, someone who is in charge of every aspect of our life, because it seems, it seems oppressive, it, it seems controlling, as if God is this kind of um, tyrant that we live under. And even some Christians have that, that uh, or convey that twisted view of God. But let me answer that objection by, by looking at what we see here in 1 Kings 3 and 4, by looking at the rest of our passage, because I want you to see, and this is what I want to convince you of, that life under the rule of a wise and selfless king is the most liberating and enjoyable way to live life. I want us to see what, what the immense benefits we have when we live under King Jesus' rule. And to remind those of you who are Christians of what you have in Jesus Christ, to, to give you some perspective reality so that you can rejoice. Do you remember what we saw in, in Ephesians this morning? In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says to the Christians, to you, to the church here, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a bold statement. So let's do that. Let's look first of all how we see it under kind of Solomon. Remember, he's our blueprint. He, he's kind of pointing forward to something greater. Let's see how we see it under Solomon's rule and then how it's greater under Jesus' rule. This is the second point, the benefits of living under a wise king. Firstly, I want you to notice that wisdom brings justice. 
creates a just and a fair society. Uh, This story that we have in chapter 3 in verses uh, 16 to 28, uh, it's a tragic story. We have these uh, two prostitutes who come before Solomon, both with infant sons, and one of the sons dies tragically. Uh, He's crushed to death. And now one of the ladies comes to Solomon and claims that in the night the other lady exchanged her living baby for the dead one, and the other woman denies it. So you've got these two women before Solomon with conflicting stories, and how is he to judge which one is right? Uh, And we see that that what he does here is, is very clever, and it's a real insight into what wisdom is. Wisdom has a profound understanding of human nature. You can see that in Solomon's rule. He takes his sword, and he pretends that he is going to chop the baby in two. And of course, the, the real mother, whose child it really is, would, would rather let the lying lady have her child than have him killed. And the lady who told the lies about the death of her own son is still so bitter that she wants Solomon to kill the child. And in their reactions to this situation, Solomon is able to determine who the true mother is. His wisdom brought justice. And what happens? Verse 28, very key. All Israel heard of the judgment of that king, that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. When there is a wise king, there will be a just society. The wise king cares for his people. And it is interesting that both these women are prostitutes because they would have been considered right at the bottom rung of society. And yet here they have the freedom to come before this king, before his throne, and to seek justice and to find justice. It would have been great to live under the rule of someone like that. Secondly, wisdom brings order. Chapter 4, 1 to 19. It's a big list of names. Uh, (laughs) I was really tempted to get Cheeks to read it. We could have got the the Gallic pronunciation of these names. Um, Chapter 4, 1 to 19. What's this about? I mean, you look at this. How does knowing that uh, Elihoreph and Ahijah have been secretaries, how does that help me today? It doesn't doesn't really get your pulse racing. But it's really important. Because what do we see in this list of names? We see here that Solomon had a well-structured and a well-ordered government. See, wisdom is not just about making good moral judgments that we saw in chapter 3. Wisdom is about putting in place good order and good structure for the people to live under. It's about preventing chaos and and creating a structure in which people can live well. Uh, You may, like me, not be gifted uh, administratively, but if we lived in a society in which there was no structure, in which there was no order, It would be chaotic. If you had a workplace like that, it would be an absolute nightmare to work there. But Solomon's wisdom brings order. Thirdly, Solomon's wisdom brings joy and peace. Uh, This is perhaps the most important thing to notice here about what life was like under Solomon's rule. Look at verse 20. It doesn't seem very like they're being oppressed, does it? Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. That is what life was like under a wise king's rule. Everyone had an abundance of stuff. There wasn't people left out. They're all there. They're all eating. They're all drinking. And they're all happy. But there's more going on in this verse. There's more going on than just the people's happiness. This verse is speaking of that promise that God gave to Abraham. It's it's almost the same language as as the promise gave to Abraham, where God says, I will make of you an abundant nation, as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the shore. 
And it's as if these promises are now starting to happen because we've got this wise king who is in place. In verse 20, we have a reference to that. And look at verse 24 to 25. They're in a land. They're surrounded by peace. And the author is trying to get us to see that because Solomon was such a wise king, God's people are starting to to experience the blessings of peace on all sides. No war. No hostility. That's incredible for a nation at that time. We We know, like I was saying, we know it didn't last long, but always remember that this is pointing forward. It's the blueprint of something greater that's to come. The king brings joy. The king brings peace to his people through his wisdom. Fourthly, wisdom satisfies the heart and mind. Uh, and now in verses 29 to 33, the author examines uh, just kind of what, what the nature of Solomon's wisdom is like. Uh, I love verse 31. <laughs> He's wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. I've been wondering who Ethan the Ezraite was and if he read 1 Kings. I don't know. Uh, but Solomon's wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. It's a funny little detail, but it just shows you that this is, this is, a his, this is history. You know, It's not somebody just making this up. These were probably prominent figures of the time. Um, notice what we read, though, about Solomon's wisdom. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. Uh, like I said, we've just studied some of them, listened to it online. Uh, they're there in the Bible. You can go and read them for yourself. Uh, and these proverbs, what was great about it when we did it, is they really stimulated the mind. Everyone who, who kind of fed back from that series that we did in Proverbs talked about how helpful it was to have that wisdom. And so to have the wisdom of Solomon, his benefits of his, of his wisdom are still being felt today. It was helpful. It stimulated the mind. It helped us to make some of the more difficult choices that we have to make in life. And it was great for Israel to have a king that offered that to his people. But notice that his wisdom isn't just cerebral. It's about celebrating and enjoying beauty wherever you could find it. Solomon appreciated the beauty in art and in music. That's what his wisdom taught him. I like to think if he was around today, he would have been a big fan of Iron Maiden because he liked good music. In fact, he wrote 1,005 of his own. He probably wouldn't have needed Iron Maiden because he's got 1,005 of his own songs. And look at, look at the details of what he did here. He, he looks at creation. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall, from the, the beautiful, magnificent trees of Lebanon to the tiny little plants of hyssop that grew out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and birds and of reptiles and of fish. Solomon looked at creation and saw the fingerprints of his creator everywhere. And in his wisdom, he, he enjoyed it. And his wisdom satisfied both the hearts and minds of the people who learned from him. That's what he offered society. And fifthly and finally, just notice this about Solomon's wisdom. It's really key. Solomon's wisdom had a global impact. The wisdom of this great king, it wasn't just for Israel, but his wisdom was so unique, it was so great to be under his rule, that he started to draw people from other nations, Queen of Sheba being one of the most prominent ones, that they would come to him to hear of his wisdom. Verse 34, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. See, God's wisdom in God's king is attractive, it's all-inclusive, and it has this global impact. 
So you see, being under the rule of Solomon, it's not, it didn't feel for an Israelite at that time oppressive or constrictive or an affront to my personal freedom because you knew under Sol- what life was like under Solomon's rule. You knew that, that under Solomon you could approach his throne and get justice. You knew that everything was well structured. You were able to have great joy and security knowing that you would not be attacked by enemies. You were able to learn from him and to have your minds engaged and your hearts enriched by his wisdom. And you knew that you were part of something that was bringing in all nations. You were God's chosen people living under God's king, experiencing God's blessings. But we have to see that if Jesus is the greater than Solomon, which he is, then the benefits of living under Jesus' rule will be infinitely greater, which they are. When we study Solomon's reign, we begin to see this king bringing God's promises, but these promises never fulfilled through Solomon. We'll see that. It's tragic, Solomon's story. It's one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. But they were fulfilled through the greater than Solomon. And the greatest expression of God's wisdom is seen in Christ. And it's seen specifically, the Bible's very clear on this, it's seen specifically in one event, his crucifixion. See, it's at that moment, that's why Jesus came. It's at that moment, Jesus, our King, was punished on our behalf, punished for our wrongdoing, all of it, so that we could be accepted by God as perfect, and so that all the sin that we have done in our lives, all the sin that we will do, will be removed from us forever. Our wise king pays for our punishment. And all we have to do, what do we have to do to get that benefit of eternal salvation? We just trust him. That's all. The cross is the ultimate expression of wisdom because it's there we learn how God can punish and destroy the sin in our lives without having to punish and destroy us. And it's there we also see how unbelievably selfless and wise and loving King Jesus really was. And that great act of wisdom, what that did, we'll see this in Ephesians. It's great that we're doing Ephesians and 1 Kings together. It ties so well. Do you know what that act of wisdom did? It brought in the world to the cross. Where when it started, Jews and Gentiles were together calling each other brother and sister. That had never happened before. And yet the cross made it possible. That's why God's people after Christ no longer were a single nation, but the church of Christ made up of all nations. That's why, as we saw again this morning in Ephesians 3 verse 10, the church is the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. Incredible. So do you see what that means for us today? Being under Jesus' rule is not oppressive. It's not restrictive. It's the only way I can be truly free. Free from sin. Free from condemnation. Free from myself. Free from my performance. Free to fail and then try again. And now, now we can experience the benefits of the cross. The benefits of living under Jesus' rule. Just like those two prostitutes came before Solomon's throne, so too can we come before Jesus' throne and find mercy and justice whenever we need it. That's what Hebrews 4 says. Our king's wisdom shows us justice towards us. Even though our sin deserves punishment, he has found a way to remove that punishment and still be just. Our king creates an ordered community of people to care and look out for one another. It's known as the church. Our king gives us peace. 
Our King gives us joy. It's the, it's the joy of knowing that no matter what, I can know for certain that God loves me and accepts me because of Jesus. It's the peace that comes from knowing that no matter how many times I muck up and I will constantly or how many struggles I face in life, I am always, always, always going to be at peace with God because of Christ, my King. Our King satisfies our hearts and minds. His wisdom leaps off the pages of Scripture, teaching us how to live in the light of reality. That's what's great about wisdom. When you study wisdom literature in the Bible, it just feels like you're cutting with the grain of reality. It's like, this is the way it's meant to be. It's his beauty that we see reflected in music, in art, and in creation. And our king brings people of all nations to him. The church is that multicultural society in which all the barriers that we tend to put up are broken down and people from widely different backgrounds and personalities are brought together under the cross of Christ. That's what it's like to follow Jesus now. We experience the freedom and and the joy and the peace amidst a broken world. But whilst we do have these benefits now, We know God's promises. They they began to be fulfilled in Christ. This is really important. But they're not completely fulfilled until the end of time when Jesus does come back, when the king returns and he brings in the new creation, when we will inherit the land, the heavenly land, and have that eternal peace. And it's there we will have perfect justice. No longer will will any of us have sin or deceit in our hearts because it's going to be gone forever. We will have the perfect, ordered, and caring society where the reality of love will be perfected in all. We will have an unending fountain of joy as we enjoy Christ more and more for all eternity. We will have everlasting peace as all evil will be eradicated forever and as every tear will be wiped away and death will be a distant memory. We will celebrate and be satisfied both in heart and mind by the beauty of the new creation and the wisdom of the King who made it. And as we are told in Revelation 5, we will be part of a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who will gather around the throne of Jesus and sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That is what you have right now under the rule of King Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, Ephesians says, it's incredible. So take this home, Reflect upon what you have in Christ. And it puts everything in your life into perspective. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we have a wise king. We need it. We need a selfless king. We need a loving king. We need a king. Because we're not in charge. And we're not the boss. But you are. And so we need a king to guide us. To help us. To teach us to live wisely. And we thank you that in Christ we have that. That we do indeed have every spiritual blessing. That we here as your church are the community of the King. And therefore we experience great benefits. And Lord, we know that in this world we will face many struggles and difficulties. And we will suffer because we say that Jesus is King. And times will be difficult and hard. And yet even through that we can still know the joy and peace of the gospel. And we thank you that it's all building up towards that moment when the kingdom will be fully realized and everything that hurts and ails us will be gone forever. We'll at last be under his rule in that perfect peace, in that perfect joy. Father, our hearts long for that.
And so we pray, King Jesus, that you would indeed return and fix all that is broken with this world, fix all that is broken in us. And Father, we pray that many more will come to know this great King and be freed and liberated by being under his rule. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.